What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of biographies, Victorian children's literature, and girls in science. Our first guest is author Candace Fleming, and we'll discuss her biographies. Then, educator Jamie Horrocks will shed some light on forgotten Victorian children's literature. Our last guest will be chemistry professor Rebecca Sampson, and we'll chat about girls in science. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of Gaston by Kelly DePuccino and listen to some author's tips. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's I recently read a newspaper article that related that starting this year, a financial literacy course will be a mandatory graduation requirement for students in Florida. The Florida Department of Education sees great benefits in developing this particular kind of literacy in students. Because you know we think highly of all literacies here at Rachel's World, it will come as no surprise that we also agree that financial literacy is pretty significant. Again, as with all literacies, financial literacy is something that we build over time, which means that we can't just start with high school graduation. It's clear that we want to see these skills building from early childhood on up. Starting this early to help kids build an understanding of how money works in the world is quite significant since research indicates that financial skills are often created by the age of seven. So if you agree with us and the folks in Florida that financial literacy is an important skill for your child's development, there are lots of ways you can address concepts of financial literacy with your children. First, it is recommended that parents help children understand what money is and how it's used. Here, experts suggest that a good place to start building this understanding is for children to earn money so they can make their own spending decisions. Another part of this equation is for children to learn how to save money for larger, more important purchases in a way that allows us to have important conversations about needs versus wants. A piggy bank or a trip to the bank and a savings account in the child's name is a great way to start a habit of savings. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau also suggests that adults consider that whenever we use money, we are teaching children about it. So they recommend open and honest communication that allows us to talk with our children firsthand about our own financial goals and expectations. As children watch and listen, they will certainly learn from the financial literacy skills you have already developed as an adult, because here at Rachel's World, we know it's these foundations that lay the groundwork for children to have a solid foundation of good financial habits and values that will allow them to deal with money in positive ways. Rachel's World. Historical figures can be looked up to, despised, or forgotten, and no matter how much we'd like to, we can't sit down and pepper them with questions. That's where biographies come into play. Deep and thoughtful research by authors can help readers get answers to those questions. 
I have Candace Fleming on the phone with me today to talk about biographies she's written. Welcome, Candace. Thank you. Candace, I am very excited to introduce you to my listening audience today. You have such a range of books, but one of the types of books, the, the format and genre that stands out to me is your biographies. So tell us a little bit about maybe some of the biographies that you've written, maybe one of your favorites that you've written, and why is it that you like to write biographies? Well, I love biography because... You know, history really is just a big story, right? And I think biographies in particular I'm drawn to because I'm very interested in people, but I'm not particularly interested in heroes. And so I know that's why I um, often go back to examining lives that we think we know, um, people like Amelia Earhart or Abraham Lincoln or Eleanor Roosevelt. Those are people that we all say, well, we know who they are. Um, So... But we don't. But there's no way we can't, right? They've lived 50-some years. Say, you're Abraham Lincoln. He lived 54 years, 365 days a year. That's a lot of life. Um, and you can't possibly cover it all. So what I love is to sort of reexamine those lives. And I love looking for things that people didn't know. I also love looking for those flaws. I'm not meaning that I'm setting out in some way to trash them at all. These are people I admire. But what I am looking for are those commonalities between them and me, because I'm certainly flawed. Um, And what I really love about people, lives like Eleanor Roosevelt or Amelia Hart, Benjamin Franklin, all of whom I've written about, what I love most about them is the fact that they are flawed. And yet they went on to overcome flaws and prejudices and bad beginnings in some cases, and they still went on to do amazing things. Um, And so for me, writing a biography is, when I get done, they're sort of role models and hope. Particularly for children, I think that that is so important to seeing those role models, that they had flaws, that they weren't perfect, but they still did great and amazing things. And that, for me, is one of the best things, particularly about biographies for children, that that makes those connections. One of the things that I love about the biographies that you do is you do do a range. I I think you write biographies that that meet the needs of most ages of readers. You do some more young adult biographies. And then some of your most recent ones, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, is is more of a middle grade uh, type type of book. So why do you choose that range of audiences, or does the subject kind of choose the audience for you? You know, the subject really does choose the audience for me. Um, for example, when I did Amelia Earhart, I could have done that, a teen book. I could have done that YA, and I could have included a lot of aspects of her life that you won't find in that book that I wrote for middle middle grade. Um, uh, not even middle grade, I should say middle school, because, it, you know, I think Amelia Earhart is pretty solidly fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Um, the, the reason... Um, I wrote that for them, is that it seems to be that the age that they, at least when I meet kids, it seems to be that the age that they've suddenly realized who she is in the sense that here's this woman that disappeared, um, and that's what they know about her. And so when I decided I wanted to write about Amelia Earhart, I thought this is a, this is a subject perfect for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. When we can start with her disappearance, we'll start You know, I'll start with what I know that they know. She disappeared, and we can use that as a springboard then to um, um, delve further into who she was as a human being, which my guess is most 
fourth, fifth, and sixth graders don't know much about her life beyond the fact that she disappeared somewhere. We don't know what happened, you know, the great mystery. Um, YA um, biographies, you know, you can get into some territory that I certainly wouldn't touch for a fourth grader, and I'm always very um, um, conscious of the types of material that I present for certain types of ages. So YA, um, I recently did a biography of the Romanoff family. Um, and you know, it has a bad end. This is not an appropriate story, in my opinion. <laughs> I would agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, is, and just the political is, context, too, of that story is it's so sophisticated. Right. Yeah. Um, and here's, yeah. there's a family that, for me, is a little bit... is. For me, the writing, it was a little bit backwards. Um, Politically, um, not good leaders, not particularly careful, um, not very thoughtful about the people that they were, um, that they believed God actually um, endowed them to take care of these folks. And they didn't do a very good job. Um, That said, I still have to present the side of Nicholas and Alexandra that were pretty great parents, loving parents, and a loving, loving couple. You know, they had this loving relationship. So there's this side that you can still connect with them, even though um, they're Russians. And, you know, I, I used to say when I was writing this book, I, I would say to people, I said, writing about um, turn of the 20th century Russia for teenagers is like writing about Mars for them. <laughs> I know they don't know anything more about <sighs> Mars than Russia. Um, and yet there were these places that you that I could find, that I knew that my teen readers would understand um, uh, relationships with their sisters and brothers, relationships with their parents, relationships, um, even though they don't have servants, relationships with their teachers, right? Um, So I kept coming back to that, even as I was writing what turned out to be um, a book that has a lot of politics, because you just can't avoid, you know, the Russian Revolution and, and, you know, Marx and communism and those other other aspects of the story, um, but I still keep coming back to that human, um, human that the core that human humanity, which for me is always the core of all all good biographies. I always refer to it as sort of getting close to the bone, you know, coming back to those people, so that even at the end of the book, and I certainly hope readers feel this way, even at the end of the book, when you when you when readers read it, and I feel like that terrible ending for the family was in some ways inevitable, um, and in some ways certainly not by the children, but in some ways brought about by Nicholas um, and Alexandra. Um, and yet you can't help feel what a tragic and terrible thing it is. There's, you know, there, it, there should be no feeling as you read that book that this should have happened. Yes, there's a sad inevitability, but it's completely tragic and horrible at the same time. So. Yeah, of of all of your books, um, of which I enjoy every single one, that book in particular is one of the ones that I think most vividly stays with me and most vividly impacted me, because I think you tell the story with such great grace and honor to what they did, but also the challenges that they were facing and their good and bad points. So when you describe that ability to tell the good and the bad together, to me, that book stands out as as one of the best examples of how well you do that as an author. So that's one of those ones that I always like to tell my audience about because it has captured my imagination and the imagination of many readers, I would presume. 
Oh, well, thank you. I love the, what I love about the family Romanoff is, is, or what I tried to do with the family Romanoff, um, the, and I should say what the challenge that I loved about the family Romanoff was um, those gray areas in history. And uh, for middle grade, middle, you know, middle grades, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade, um, I don't think writing about the gray areas of history is, is you know, they're, they're not ready for that. But certainly, teenage readers and um, love those gray areas. I, I think need to know about the gray areas. And what I mean by gray areas are not things that we don't know about history, um, you know, definite facts, but those gray areas, like we don't know what to do with the history that we know. You know, there's, those, there's that, that sort of moral um, no man's land, do you know? You know what I'm talking about? Let me yeah. like, give you an example. Um, for example, Benjamin Franklin had, <clears throat> excuse me, Benjamin Franklin had slaves. That's a gray area. What do you do with that? Because in our our um, vision of him, in our collective American memory, I think, he's sort of this jovial guy that was witty and, and did a lot of things for his country and invented things that we use all the time. And he had such a great sense of humor. And we never talk about the fact that for a time he actually owned slaves because it doesn't fit in with how we all, well, how we think about him, right? Our conceptions of who he, who, who he is. And I think the Romanovs have that, too. Um, they have become sort of a fairy tale in history. Um, this, this beautiful family, and they were, goodness, they were physically beautiful. They're <laughs> yes. beautiful. They're real, weren't they? Yes, most definitely. They're rich. Yeah. And they're... Um, the, um, Nicholas owns one sixth. Imagine this: one sixth of the land mass of the world in oh, 1910. Yeah. It seems impossible. Nothing more opulent than the Russian court at that period. <laughs> yeah. Nothing yeah. more opulent, yeah. and and yet, how does that happen? How, in the space of say 1900 to 1917, does that happen? That you can be those people and then end up in that cellar with that terrible ending? And so, um, it is does have sort of a fairy tale to it. So where are the gray areas there? You know, where are those moral choices? Um, what moral choices would you have made? You know, I often think to myself, my friend Tanya Bolden calls it kicking it to the reader. Oh, I love I'm it. I'm not going to tell you. I, isn't that great? Yeah, that's I, perfect. Well, I always have to credit her. I wish I could take it myself. But, <laughs> but she calls it kicking it to the reader. I can't, I'm not going to give you the answers. Um, as the, Fourth graders, yes, I might provide you some answers, but not teen readers. Um, I want them to think about it themselves. I want them to ask the questions. What choice would I have made? What would I have done? Um, how would I have felt? Because um, there are no easy answers. You know? I, I really do love how you explore that in all your biographies. I also think of your biography of Buffalo Bill and P.T. Barnum. There definitely was um, some two great showmen um, that impacted our culture and our history in amazing ways, but also some moral ambiguity there about how they treated people and how they represented people and all of these other kinds of things that that really just become that kind of sense of ambiguity. But you, you represent that in such a wonderful way right. that's approachable by children. Yeah, gray areas. You know, it's those gray areas that, you know, Go ahead, let me present the information, let me tell you the true story, and then you, reader, you go ahead and, and you know, think about it. What I really want readers to do is, is, is think about it. Um, I'm a firm believer if that if they think about it, if they make some connections to their own lives, if they wonder what they would have done in such and such a situation, I really think they come to own history. 
a little bit more. And then it doesn't, it's not just simply a fact or an event that happened, but there's a connection to um, what happened in our past and what's happened, you know, in the present and what may happen in the future, because we all know there is that, that thread through the centuries. Um, I'm working on a new YA biography now, which is, you know, fascinating, about Charles Lindbergh. Oh, actually. interesting. And you talk about a man that's, that's morally, you know, that there's a lot of ambigu- ambiguity mm-hmm. there. Uh, is he good? Is he bad? Is he a hero? Is he not? What is he? Um, you know, um, and I, I can't land on it. I can't land on it either. I love him and I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> I love and that. You know, I, 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 there are parts where I just, you know, got to know him so well. There were parts that I just cried for him and other parts where I thought, oh, you fool, you yeah. fool, you need to talk with me. <laughs> so, I know. The, so, the, I am looking forward to that day when some of these historical figures, I can just sit them down and say, okay, historical figure, tell me, what were you thinking? <laughs> do you want to do that? I just totally wanted to do it with Nicholas and Alexandra. Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah. I know. There's you know? so many of those that I just think that I want to sit down and say, okay, you know, tell me about your emotions. Tell me about, you know, what the process was of going through this, because we can only get so much through letters and reports and other sources that that a lot of history is is left kind of vague. <laughs> the interesting conundrums of history. Well, thank you for illuminating them through through your wonderful <laughs> books. Candace Fleming is the author of numerous biographies for children. Now we have story time with a book review of Gaston by Kelly B. Puccino. Do you ever feel like you don't belong? Like the grass is greener on the other side? The book Guest On by Kelly DiPuccio, illustrated by Christian Robinson, discusses this theme through the story of Gaston, a young French bulldog who is born into a family of poodles. He quickly realizes that he is not as perfectly precious as his sibling pooches. He roughs while they yip, and he races while they walk with grace. But one day, as Gaston's family visits the park, they run into a family of all bulldogs. Well, except Antoinette. Antoinette is a poodle who was born as the only poodle in a family of French bulldogs. Having experienced similar struggles as Gaston, Antoinette and Gaston decide to switch families to see what it would be like to be with a family who they may fit in with better. In the end, after a few mishaps, they learn that it's okay to be different and that the grass is not always greener on the other side. This has been one of my most favorite picture books that I've read so far this year, mainly due to the illustrations and the overall message. First of all, Christian Robinson's illustrations are really beautiful. The entire book has a dainty French art kind of feel. It's not extravagant art by any means, but the style of art, which is a little quirky and fun and dainty, I think goes along well perfectly with the entire message of the book. Christian makes it so that you can see rough brush strokes that look like colored in Crayola marker as the grass. But by not having all art perfect, Christian is truly sticking to the theme of the book. I feel that this is a nod to the book's It's Okay to Be Different theme. I seriously love that he did this technique because it makes you appreciate art that may be a little different than what you're used to. Not to mention the dogs themselves are really super cute. This is the type of book where I just want to rip out some of the pages and frame them on my wall due to the great illustrations. Aside from the beautiful illustrations that grace the pages of the book, the theme that this story's plot follows is really what captivated me. The end moral of the story, as mentioned previously, is that it's okay to be different. We learn through both Gaston and Antoinette that you can't force yourself to be somebody that you're not. You'll never truly be happy that way. 
I think that many students and adults would thrive from hearing this message. However, I feel that this story portrays this message in such a way that it really does empower you to embrace your differences without feeling too much like the message is shoved down your throat. This book also showcases the beauty of admiring others who may be different from you as well, which is also a powerful message in itself. In fact, at the end of the story, we watch as Gaston and his family teach the Bulldog family how to be tender, and an Antoinette and her family teach the Poodle family how to be tough. Overall, this is a really cute read that is great for all ages. It is one that I plan to use as a read aloud in my future classroom and would be a great addition to any family's bookshelf. It's the type of book that you'll remember, whether it be for the inspiring message or for the beautiful illustrations, or both. Read Gaston to remind yourself and your loved ones that it's okay to be different. Many parents are constantly on the lookout for new books to introduce to their children. While there are many wonderful books available today, there are some amazingly unique and fantastical books that have dropped off the face of the literate world for one reason or another. We're in studio today with Jamie Horrocks, an English professor here at BYU, to chat about why some of these books aren't well known anymore. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so glad you are here because I want to talk about some of my favorite children's books that maybe not a lot of people know about. I know a lot of people, when we talk about the Victorian era of children's literature, will know some of the standards, the Peter Pans and Alice in Wonderlands. But there's some out there that are less familiar. And I am excited to introduce some of them to to our listeners today. So tell us, what do you think are some of those less famous or less currently famous children's books that were published during this Victorian era? I think at the very top of that list has to be uh, The Water Babies. So The Water Babies um, was a book. It was serialized first, um, starting in about 1862. And then it was published in a full sort of novel volume. And it says something that it's never been out of print since the 1860s. And yet, even though it was enormously popular back in the 19th century, it really has dropped off the radar of most people. Unless you're specializing in Victorian lit or children's literature, you probably don't know um, the Water Babies, but it's a delightful story. So what do you like about it? What is it that captures your personal attention about Water Babies? So Water Babies, um, just to sort of give a quick synopsis, is about this little boy who is employed as a chimney sweep. Uh, very Victorian 19th century, right? He's a very bad life. He's sort of abused. He's sent to this this house of this rich person um, to sweep the chimneys and ends up being chased out of the house. And he runs away and he falls into this river. And uh, the rest of the book is the story of his kind of re-education um, from creatures, magical creatures, and also fish and insects and stuff that he meets in the river. Um, there's something just quintessentially Victorian about this this story of a kind of straight urchin who nobody wants, a, a throwaway orphan child who finds a kind of redemption. And it's a, it's a very secular redemption, even though it's a the, the things he's being taught are religiously associated. He learns the golden rule. He learns to be, you know, kind to his neighbors, that kind of thing. Um, the the story of kind of salvation that he he works his way through, I think, is is a particularly nice and very common in many children's literature. Right, it's sort of re-educating a child um, that starts off not socially fit in some way, and teaching that child how to function in society. I, that is one of the things I love about that book, too, is just that sense of 
re-education and, and, and teaching and growth in childhood. And I think it's really interesting to me that I see that theme repeated a lot, even in adult literature. So we think of Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. That is a thematic piece from his work. We even look more modern and think about things like Mary Poppins and those types of things. It really is this wonderful kind of classic theme that we can see all throughout children's literature. So it's kind of sad to me that this book isn't isn't more popular than it is. Why do you think it got lost? What it, What is the reason that only us yeah, experts know right. about it? <laughs> no, I think there are good good reasons, or at least understandable reasons. You know, part of it is the fact that it is still very didactic, and it takes a kind of patience to see uh, this this creature being instructed. I mean, one of my favorite characters in the book is called Mrs. Do as You Would Be Done by, and Mrs. Do as You Would Be Done by teaches young Tom, the water baby, to do as he would be done by. The golden rule, essentially, right? It's pretty heavy-handed um, to have these creatures. So the the heavy-handedness of the lessons, I think, appeals to modern readers less. But you also have some problematic elements in the, in the book. So um, there are lots of references to uh, racial and ethnic minorities. Um, there are sliding references to black people um, as sort of lesser and unintelligent there are several references to the Irish, interestingly enough. Um, Kingsley, a, a British writer, was not uh, too complimentary about, about the Irish, calling them um, sort of idle and poor and insolent. Um, uh, there's some slurs against uh, Jews in the book as well. So there are elements that we wouldn't consider politically correct today, but not just political correctness. They're things that should make us uncomfortable when we read them, and especially when we read them in the context of a book aimed at children supposed to be teaching children. There's something about, you know, well, adults can sort of pick up a historical text and process racist references as part of a historical moment. Children can't do that. And so I think there's a reluctance to give a book like that to children who just don't have the tools yet to process that kind of stuff. That is the trickiest part about that book for me, too, and particularly using it with any kind of child. I have used it in some older classes where we do tar- start talking about processing those kinds of racial references and and just the changes in perceptions and the changes in authors' perceptions and authors' responsibility to yeah. the reader, right? Because there has been some significant changes in those kinds of perceptions about what, what responsibilities does the author have to, to help children understand these kinds of things. So there's some interesting instructional things you can do with it, but, but it is tricky to just sit down and read aloud and, oh, this is a wonderful story we're going to cover. Up and, or or and you just, you know, give it to your little child and yeah. say, have fun, right? Yeah. But I mean, that's that's all the more reason, as you say, to sort of pick this book up again in an educated kind of context, because I think it's important to have those conversations with growing kids. You know, what do you do when you find references um, to slavery um, yeah. in historical texts? It's this great lesson for kids to learn within kind of a, a, a structured setting. Well, and just to show children that thought evolves and yeah. impressions evolve and and even an author who might have represented this would have evolving kinds of senses of what what this kind of interaction with other people is. And that, that can be really healthy, I think, to yeah. have those really kinds of structured conversations because these books aren't sanitized, right? They, they deal with the realities of what was happening in those eras and those kinds of impressions of the Irish, of course, were, you know, very raw and real mm-hmm. for particular authors in that time or, right. you know, 
blacks or Jews or all those types of things, we come into that sense of the raw realness of people's interactions, which which is tricky but interesting yeah. at the same time. Right. One of my very favorites that is lesser known, of course, is uh, the Tom Brown books. And Tom Brown School Days is probably one of my all-time personal favorites. And I really wish more people were familiar with it. So tell us about Tom Brown. <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated that... Tom Brown hasn't been resurrected in the wake of the Harry Potter phenomenon. Yes! Because Tom Brown School Days is the original Harry Potter story. So there's this long tradition in British literature of writing books about, especially about boys, who are sent away to school. And then the books follow a series of years as the boys progress through school, right? This is Harry Potter, as as most young readers um, know today, right? But Tom Brown was one of the first books that sat down and did this. So it's the story of this little boy, Tom, who is sent to school. I think he's 10 or 11 when the books first start. And he has adventures at this, uh, what in the 19th century were called uh, public schools, but today we would call them private schools. These kind of classic boys institutions like Eaton or Harrow or in in the case of uh, Tom Brown, the school rugby, which has an important history um, in the history of sports, right? Um, Tom Brown's School Days is a fascinating read for anyone who's interested in sort of the school experience of adolescence. It has all of the same things that a book like Harry Potter has. Um, it discusses uh, bullying. It discusses you know the, the relative importance of academic interests versus athletic interests. It discusses um, relationships with parents. And, you know, appropriate relationships between children and teachers who are kind of stand-in for parents when you're talking about, like, a boarding school like these boys would go to. Um, and Tom Brown is also just a fascinating glimpse into the 19th century, right? Yeah. That's one of the things I love about it is this sense that just looking into the 19th century and and how kids were part of that conceptual grouping of people in in that context and the schooling and interactions among friends and all of those types of things it it's one of those kind of slices of life it it gives me that same kind of feeling as kind of the Jane Austen type mm-hmm. of things where if you you know you you feel like you're there you feel like you've been transported into this era and you're getting this kind of slice of of what that might have been possible in that era to do so and they're del- they're just delightful stories at the same time you know whenever i teach the tom brown books um in my classes my students are always fascinated to note the the similarities in sort of what makes a good young male student in the 1860s and how similar it is to what makes a good student in like the Harry Potter books, right? So Tom Brown, he's not particularly bright. He's he's not an exceptional student. He's not particularly moral or ethical. Like he's not an exemplar. Um, Why is Tom Brown a great kid? Well, because he's got pluck, Um, because he's loyal to his friends, because he's a really good athlete. And so he represents his school well. Right. So these characteristics that maybe aren't necessarily the ones as teachers we want to say are important. Right. As a teacher, I often think, well, no, working hard, you know, being intelligent, developing your mind. Those aren't the characteristics that make an ideal schoolboy from this perspective. And that, I think, is one of the things that makes him such an amazing character because he is flawed. And I think particularly in this era of children's literature, we start seeing that truly realistic depiction of children as multifaceted and flawed in many ways and growing and developing. And Tom Brown really just has, he captures that essence of 
of true childhood that is developing and growing to become an adult. And, you know, in some ways I would consider them like the first middle grade mm-hmm. novels of of the world, right? They They really are these ones that are capturing that kind of adolescent almost beginning adolescent experience and not the truly childhood experience which which again makes them unique in my estimation and the canon of children's literature so as we close up our conversation today jamie maybe tell us one or two things that you think people need to know about this particular era of literature and maybe why they should check out some of the less famous books that were published in this era You know, I think I would encourage readers to do it Um, as a way of understanding sort of where we've come from. Um, The way we think about children today isn't just like poof out of the air, right? It's, It's part of an evolution that started a long, long time ago. And so in order to stop and think about, you know, why do we think of adolescence the way that we do, sometimes picking up these older books are actually more helpful in understanding that than picking up a modern book. I think that that is a perfect note to end on so we can see the great development and change not only of our social perceptions of childhood, but but also just have a great story at the same time. Thanks so much, Jamie. You're welcome. Jamie is an English professor here at BYU. Now, let's focus on the budding writers out there. We always ask authors who come into studio to give us their advice. Today, we'll hear from Ariane de Beauvoisin, Adam Gidwitz, and Heather Price. The most important thing, I think, for young people uh, who are interested in writing is to have as much fun as they possibly can while they are writing. Um, at this age, um, it doesn't have to be publishable. It certainly is never going to be perfect. Um, if you worry too much about spelling or grammar or even, you know, does it make sense or it's not yet 200 pages, I really want to write a 200-page story, um, you might slow yourself down. But if you can just have fun, write the weirdest, funniest, most exciting things you can think of. If you're having fun when you're writing, your writing will be more creative, you will do more of it, and you will get better and better. So for the kids, and also I would say for the teachers out there, the more fun young people are having while they are writing, the better the writing will be now, and especially in the future. I love to tell them to study writers they like, you know, to find... Um, someone for me that's Joan Bauer I absolutely love her writing and to to read it not as a reader but as a writer and to look at you know how do they frame their dialogue how does she describe her characters how is the plot set up you know how you know is there a hook at the end of each chapter that gets you to turn to the next page because I think reading something critically um, makes a huge difference because we all have those books that we know we absolutely love but to actually look at one and think but why do I love this? Why is it a compelling story? Why do I fall in love with these characters? Why does their dialogue seem so real to me? Um, so that's, you know, reading. I, I was kind of horrified once when I heard a young adult writer say, when they said, who are your favorite young adult writers? And she was like, oh, I don't I don't read young adult. That's what I write. And I was like, how can you know <laughs> your genre if you're not uh, reading? So I think reading voraciously, but, but, you know, also reading critically, reading with that eye to how does this work? How does this compel me? I think that's what can make a huge difference for students. My first tip is get your child a journal. I got my son his first journal when he was three 
Um, he sees me have a journal, he sees my husband have a journal, but he gets his own journal. He gets to choose it, his has a dinosaur on it, it's a bunch of blank pages, no lines. And I invite him to draw in it, whether he wants to draw something that happened today, but I also sit down and I ask him to tell me a story. And then I write down the story for him. And I feel like that's his first book that he's writing. And he knows it, it's his, he has it in his keep safe place in his room, no one else has it. That would be my first tip. My second tip would be that some children are great at writing stories, some children are great at telling stories, and some children are great at drawing stories. And I feel like as a parent or caretaker, you know, just figure out which one your child is most comfortable in because all children are storytellers, but not all children are good at all three of those mediums. If they're great at the visual, let them visually explain the story and then perhaps you write it down for them. If they're great at writing, but just stretch out and feel into which one is my child right now. Um, and a third tip I would say is, you know, it's such an important life skill for a child to be able to write and tell stories, whether they're going to be a writer one day or whether they're just going to use this, you know, in their work environment. So even though your child might never become a full-time writer, remember that writing and storytelling is a critical life, business, work skill of both to oval types. Bravo. I could not agree more. Who do you think of when you hear the word scientist? Are any of them women? As children grow up, it's essential for them to have role models for the topics that they are passionate about. This includes girls interested in science. I have in studio today Rebecca Sampson, a chemistry professor at BYU, to talk to future female scientists. Welcome, Rebecca. We're in studio with Rebecca today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about girls and science. I think that this is a very important topic, and we often hear a lot about it. It's in the popular news all the time. And they talk about things that, you know, there's not enough women in science. We really need to get women in science. So what what are your thoughts on that issue? Let's start generally. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm all for women in science. <laughs> Being a woman in science myself, I'm definitely an advocate for that. I think, um, gosh, it's sort of a big topic. Uh, fundamentally, though, it's really a social construct, this idea that girls maybe aren't as good at science or aren't as interested in science as boys. And when we look at data, what we see is that at the elementary school, up until about fourth grade, girls and boys are equally interested in science and equally enthusiastic about it. And then somewhere between fourth and eighth grade, girls start to become less interested. Um, boys lose interest too, but girls lose interest at a faster rate. And there's probably just a whole host of causes for why that happens. So one thing I want to talk about is the, the story of science, the history of science. And computer science is actually a really great example of this. A lot of people don't know that computer, that computer science was really invented by women. Grace Hopper is a famous pioneer in, in computer science. People don't know her name. And um, these people got 
a man on the moon, you know, using using their brains. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. And, um, you know, it's a story that we don't hear. We hear about the astronauts. We hear about the men who've, who've made history with, with science and math. And we don't necessarily hear about the women. So I, I think that issue of role models and having role models that you can see doing mm-hmm. what you're doing is a really important thing. Yeah. You also run a a summer program where you do work with um, with students and help them to learn science. And in that, you have some of the students here at the university, particularly the female students, participate in that mm-hmm. program. So, how does that provide mentorship for these? Young yeah, women? that's a great a great point. So, we ran the first ever chem camp this summer, um, and it was a fantastic experience. We had kids here who were between fourth and sixth grade, so we kind of targeted that group that that's where the interest kind of starts to drop off. And um, we made sure that we had equal numbers of girls and boys participating in the camp. Um, So there wouldn't be that sense, well, gosh, I'm already a minority um, as a girl, a fourth grade girl uh, who who likes science. And then also we had some undergraduate science majors act as the counselors. And um, I think it was fantastic. So the whole, I mean, I'm really pleased with the way the camp turned out. The kids had a great experience. I think the counselors learned a lot. And I think it's so powerful for young women. Um, you know, I guess these are these are still children, <laughs> but but <laughs> they're young women young, too. <laughs> they're, they're very young girls. It's important for girls to um, to have role models that they see that are happy and successful and interested in science. And I mean, I think each person on the earth has their own unique talents and abilities, and um, we we do nobody a service by hiding our abilities. I think we bring glory to God by by engaging with the things, th- with our aptitudes and with the things that are interesting and that we're passionate about. And so I, I think that for girls to see women who are passionate about science and, and making a difference in the world is so powerful. Bravo. Amen. You alluded earlier that you said there are multiple things that, that oh, yeah. make this possible. So is there another issue that you'd like to bring up? Yeah, let's lines? see. Well, um, you know, it, there's different things that happen sort of at different stages in child development. And I've, I previously taught in the high school, so I worked a lot with high school students. And now at the university, you see all of these different social constructs happening. So starting in about middle school, girls start to lose interest in math and science. Carol Dweck talks about a growth mindset. I'm sure you're you're familiar. Um, And one of the ways that we um, socialize girls is to say, oh, you're such a good girl. You did such a good job or um, you're you're so good. You're so smart. Um, And and to boys, we really um, treat them more as we acknowledge their effort. So, for example, it's hard for a boy to sit still. So we say, oh, you did such a good job paying attention in class today. Or you did such a good job working on this assignment. And so we praise that effort as opposed to the outcome in in boys. And it's a it's it's a well-documented fact that this is a difference in the way that we, we talk to children. And when girls start to encounter something that's a little bit more difficult, like they get to middle school math and maybe they're in algebra and it's harder than what they had done in elementary school, well, all of a sudden they're not the smart one anymore because they didn't get the same outcome that they expected. And they're also not used to 
saying, oh, well, I didn't get that yet. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep practicing. So so this concept of failure and accepting failure as a part of progress is so important for our children, all of our children, to understand that failure is a part of progress. We fail. Everybody fails. And when you fail, you learn something and you try again and you get better and that you can really develop these these talents and the ability. So if you're interested in something, even if maybe it's hard for you, that doesn't mean that you're excluded from that community. It means that you can engage and you can work and you can get better. I I really think that that is such an important point because I think sometimes, particularly with kids, we try to under emphasize failure. We think, oh, you know, we want to just make them feel better about themselves and build them up. But we need to realize this sense of growing and development is so much a part of that. So for particularly for girls, how mm-hmm. how would you recommend that adults go about this? Mm-hmm. Particularly if a girl shows an aptitude for science mm-hmm. or is interested in science or math, what can we do to help make sure that that doesn't happen, that they don't lose that interest or they they feel empowered to move forward with that? Yeah. Well, I think um, it's a great question. And if we knew the answer, (laughs) we'd have more women in science. We'd have more women in science, you know. But um, I think think actually acknowledging failure and saying, hey, you know what? You didn't do well this time, but that doesn't mean that you're not smart. It doesn't mean that you are a failure. It just means that this particular thing that you did didn't work quite right. And you think of someone like, I think Thomas Edison said – I haven't I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it didn't work, you know, um, and that's that's part of science. Like like I, I mentioned earlier, just the the investigation of the world around you, like most of what scientists do doesn't work. Ultimately, we fail a lot. And then every once in a while we do something and it's really great and it works and we think, wow, we learned something. And I think that we just have to um build in that sort of that failure is an acceptable thing and and that it's good even because it leads us to to improvement um I think that that's really important. And then the other thing, I think, if you have a girl that's interested in science, just don't discourage her. Um, you know, actually, if if somebody says, yeah, I'm interested in science, well, yeah, find the chemistry summer camp or go to the museum or, you know, go to the local university or do the science fair. So many things that you can do that are that are going to encourage that. And um they do have some evidence also that women, as, as undergraduates even, don't go on into graduate careers, into graduate degrees, because they're not specifically encouraged to do so. And so they think because, well, because my advisor didn't tell me, oh, I should go into graduate school, I must not be smart enough. They would have told me if I were smart enough to go to go to graduate school. And and that's not true, uh, obviously, right? Um, but but it, girls tend to internalize that more uh, than boys do. So I think just um, praising effort, praising learning, praising growth as opposed to an outcome is really important. And then I think just just stay in tune with what your daughters are talking about and thinking about and, and try and help support what their interests are. I think that that just support and being tuned in is is so important and it makes a makes a huge difference. Have you found this to be the case in your own personal experience that that your parents were tuned in and mm-hmm. what what did they do right to yeah. to help you be the amazing scientist that you are today? Yeah. There was just an understanding that we were going to go to college 
there was never an if you go to college. It was always when you go to college. You know, from a young age, I remember my mom bought me like a Harvard sweatshirt when I was like eight. And, um, you know, we just it was it was just part of the conversation like that that higher education is a thing that you're going to do and and then i think i was really lucky as an undergraduate i actually had a female mentor my undergraduate advisor was a woman a chemistry professor um and she, you know, I just thought I could do whatever I wanted to do. I never felt like there were any limitations. And, you know, different environments are going to produce different feelings, I suppose. Being in contact with her and knowing that she was a successful woman in science and had a family and was happy and, um, you know, also had a great career and was doing interesting research, uh, that was that was a great example to me. And some people will be lucky enough to have that situation, and some people aren't. Unfortunately, you know, when when they go to college, maybe there aren't female professors in in the engineering department or in the in the chemistry department. And so um, that I think that can be difficult. It's really important that we have those role models that help girls realize that there aren't limitations to what they can do. And that is the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Rebecca Sampson is an assistant chemistry professor here at BYU. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Matt and Nathan from Orem Public Library to chat about kids and teens. really excited about the opportunities, particularly for children and teens, that libraries are offering today. And there's such a diversity of things. There's new technologies, there's new spaces, and all kinds of things that we're offering for kids in our libraries today. So tell me a little bit about your perspective on that. How, how do you guys interface with kids and teens in your library? And what kinds of things are you offering them? And how do they interact with those things maybe differently than adults might? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's kids are just saturated with um, you know technology um, in a way that I didn't feel like I was. You know, growing so up. So true. <laughs> um, and so I think, especially as librarians, you know, we, it's kind of our um, goal. I think our our mission to kind of direct you know, this self-learning. And so it's like um, we've had success at the library by providing a coding and gaming club. And it's like, well, if kids are really into video games, maybe we can get them interested in like coding video games, you know, and learning some skills um, that go toward this. I mean, what job now, you know, would not benefit from a knowledge of, you know, uh, coding? You know, um, there's just so many tools out there and, Soon, you know, you're really going to have to have those skills. Well, not soon, already. Yeah, you already have to. And I I like that term you use, self-learning, because for me, I think that that's kind of a switch that we've had, particularly with technology. But I think within the last like 10 years, you know, it used to be you had to go to school. You had to have an official credential or official certificate, right? But so much of what we do today is this kind of self-taught, self-learning, you know, self-growth type of things. And I think libraries in particular and all the services and resources resources that they provide are like mega bastions for that kind of process that yeah. you're describing of of being able to learn it on your own and but develop something that's not just, you know, a basic thing but actually has a really high level of quality mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some uh self-directing 
teens really take initiative with the video editing software. Uh, sometimes it's it's a little bit overwhelming, mm. um, yeah. but we have software that uh, you could start out with the beginner. I mean, iMovie, but we have music uh, editing or uh, software that is a beginner. Then there's also an advanced and allows them to really i i like nathan was saying you know we're we're saturated with technology but i don't think we are as creative as we used to be we don't you know whittle sticks to make (laughs) swords you know we don't do the things that that we used to do um but this allows them even even a patron who comes and and learns how to make a keychain a 3G, 3D object keychain with their name on it, that still is really cool to them. They get really excited because it's something that they made and it's something that they can hold. And uh, we've had some kids come in and do a very basic music program that has all the music loaded and they just can slide the buttons up and down, but it familiarizes them them with composition and with the techniques that they'll need to to record their music later so it it's it's been really cool to see them just create these things on their own and take such pleasure in the creation and that i think is key to me that kind of creativity right because i think a lot of people look at technology and they don't think creativity they think you know stem kinds of things yeah there's something creative about it definitely oh yeah but what you know that that particularly for me is where it connects with children and teens mm-hmm. the very best, right? Is because mm-hmm. that's what we want our children and teens to be is creative, mm-hmm. right? I think if we can build creativity in our children, we really set them up properly for their futures. I mean, do you agree? Or, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was reading something the other day that I hadn't really thought about, but so many of the minds that have shaped the way that we live today with our technology, it's like, you know, they were very intelligent and they had, you know, a really strong work ethic and discipline and all these other virtues that we want our kids to have, but they also had a lot of luck. They had access to the tools that they needed. You know, I mean, if if like Steve Jobs, you know, or had not had access to computers at a very early age, you know, it it could have been a completely different you know world. Um, and it's it's the same thing. I mean, libraries are here to provide access to the people in our communities to. Um, you know, because there's lots of really smart kids out there who might do some amazing things if they have the right tools. And so that's that's what I love about libraries and, and the makerspace. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's, the, it's that wonderful kind of trifecta, right? It's, it's like you've got access to the things you need and a space and environment to do it in that's safe and, you know, open to everybody and then access to people who will help you or support you or, you know, even if you don't know how to use it, they'll say, I don't know how to use it. Let's figure out how to use it. it Yeah, that's right. I mean, have you had that experience? Absolutely. I'm like, I have no clue how to do this, but we're going to work on it together. Absolutely. (laughs) Every day. And and the the makerspace is self-directed and everyone, you know, is doing it on their own. But 
we will watch a tutorial together. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. We will figure yeah. out the it answers. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I think that's one of the skills we have as librarians, right? If we don't know how to do it, we at least know how to figure out how to yes. do it, right? right? We have yeah. access to the resources to figure it out. Yeah. We know how to find the resources to figure it out. So that's, that, right. yeah. that's where our talents lie. Yeah. And those are important <laughs> skills to pass on as well. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and again, that's that process of self-learning, and it's a process of creativity, right? I think yeah. self-learning just naturally develops that process of creativity right and yeah and, and progresses yeah. along those lines yeah yeah and a 10 year old uh, came in and showed me how to 3d model the basic keychain a few weeks ago <laughs> i'd never seen this program before this kid walks in and just shows me you know boop 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 and just does it super fast i was just i was blown away that and that's one of the things i love particularly working in these spaces with kids and teens is seeing how much more they bring oh, to the yeah. table than sometimes yeah we even know or expect you know like we see this 10 year old and we're like oh we didn't realize that you were like a genius yeah. at the self modeling <laughs> stuff yeah, you know? yeah and he taught me just yeah yeah i mean here here we are in our middle age yeah. kind of area and i'm just like <laughs> You kids know more about this than I do, Absolutely. which is wonderful because they it can is. teach us and we can teach them. And and again, that just brings it down to this sense of community too, mm-hmm. right? It's it's not about kid, just kids together or just teens together or just adults together. It's about all of us being together and engaging in this really cool, really cool stuff. Yeah. So if you could kind of like envision the future of all of this for kids and teens, I mean, what yeah. what what might be your, you know – prognosis your future cast of of where this might be going i i you know that wow. that's a hard thing to think about but where where might you think it goes from here oh man that's a good question i have yeah, no idea that is a really good <laughs> that's question, a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's wild because we're trying to provide the software and equipment that is kind of cost prohibitive for people who want to do you know, a, a kid might see uh, a video about mountain biking and be really into mountain biking and want to do his own, but he might not be able to afford a GoPro. You might not be able to afford a video editing suite and afford the computer to do it. And so we're providing that for them so that they can do that. And then I'm not sure where it goes in the future if all of that stuff keeps becoming cheaper. It's like internet access and printers. You know, in the That's 80s, cool. like the library was a place. If the you only place you print. can go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And now everyone's got them. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not wow. sure. Yeah. You know, I don't Holograms. know. Holograms. Yeah. yeah. No. Flying. Yeah. Flying cars. Skateboards. You never know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. know. Yeah. But you know, I think it's a. I think it's a. It's a good possibility. Some of these, you know, future technologies that we're not even capable of imagining right now will come about because of of these types of things. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank You're you. Welcome. Thanks for having us. I'd like to thank Matt and Nathan for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Candace Fleming about biographies. Then we spoke with Jamie Horrocks about some forgotten Victorian children's literature. Our last interview was with Rebecca Sampson, and we chatted about girls in science. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Thank you.